Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. Since 2010, the most listened to radio show in the nonprofit sector dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to fundraising success, and practical nonprofit management advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from top experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to expert nonprofit management. Guests on the Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share their insider tips and trade secrets in a conversational style both the experienced and novice will benefit from. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on the radio links. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome here to The Nonprofit Coach. And you may have noticed at the top of the show here, our announcer, uh, mentioned that we've been doing this since 2010. Uh, that means that uh, this is our big ninth anniversary show. Uh, and I'm going to bring in Diane Peach just for a second uh, to say hello because Diane Peach is the producer of our show. Uh, happy anniversary. Happy birthday, Diane. Thank you so much, Ted. I really enjoy and it. Thank you for all that you do. You've got a great line up for us. So I'm going to just start off the show here with you here, and uh, let's take a listen. Happy birthday, happy birthday, happy, happy birthday to you. Diane, happy birthday, and thank you for all that you do. You've got a great lineup for, uh, for us today. Uh, we typically start off uh, with uh, page one news, but because this is our big ninth anniversary show, uh, we are going to start off our show uh, with Ava Aldridge, uh, who is many times here giving us updates from CFRE International. Uh, but she's the uh, first of many guests today uh, who want to join us, share her wisdom, and also help celebrate our big anniversary, our big birthday here. So, Ava Aldrich, uh, uh, President and CEO, CFRE International, thank you for joining us here on the big ninth anniversary show. Well, thank you, Ted, and happy anniversary. I mean, nine is a big well, accomplishment, and you do so much to build community in the nonprofit, so that's important. 
Well, thank you. Well, so does uh, CFRE and the professional certification that you provide and the guidance that uh, you provide to professionals in this sector. And so I thought I'd, I'd start off, and this is sort of a, a line of, of questioning for, for all of our guests uh, today as they, uh, as they join us, is, you know, take a look back at, at the last nine years or even the last decade, um, and, you know, what are some of the most important touch points that you think we should recognize in this ninth anniversary? And then from your perspective, uh, what do you think the, the next nine years might bring to the philanthropic sector or, or even the next decade? So, uh, Ava, what do you think? Well, I think from the perspective of, of certification, I'll start off there. I think that, that the public uh, government, really the profession itself, is looking much more to strengthen codes of practice and standards and accountability. Uh, I think we see that worldwide between uh, what happened in the United Kingdom um, with the, uh, the creation of a new fundraising regulator, uh, certainly in Australia, a lot of pro good proactive work by the Fundraising Institute of Australia to strengthen codes and practice. And with CFRE, we, we continue, or continue to see growth. Um, we are just shy of 6,500 CFREs worldwide. That number continues to have strong growth. And I think that goes to really the profession itself. You know, saying that it is an emerging profession, certainly it continues to be that, but a greater and stronger sense of professionalism uh, within fundraisers themselves and a, a dedication to that. Um, in terms As you of mentioned, forward, um, yeah, yeah what, what I wanted to ask mm -hmm. you is looking forward, mm -hmm. certainly you've, you've mentioned some of the changes in the sector. Can, can you, as you look forward to the next nine years, sort of reflect on this notion of self-regulation of uh, a profession and government regulation of a profession? Mm -hmm. well, I think one of the strengths of fundraising is that it is open to citizens as well as professionals to raise money for the causes that they care about. But to keep that openness, I think we, have, we as a profession have to have a very strong commitment to ethics, accountability, and really self-regulation. So between codes of practice from our professional organizations uh, to CFRE, which is a voluntary certification, if we are going to continue to have a public that trusts in the nonprofit sector and that will give and give generously, we need to do everything we can to maintain that trust and professional certification is a part of that, as well as our attention through professional societies to really defining and maintaining high standards for our practice. Mm -hmm. I think that's just and, going and to continue you, and get even more important. So, so do you see uh, self-regulation sort of being the norm nine years from now, or is more government regulation going to be the norm in the fundraising profession? You know, I think in some ways it's up to us. How well are we going to really work to regulate ourselves? I mean, certainly if you take a look at legislatures and state legislatures in the United States, there are an increasing number of efforts to um, basically have licensure for various um, professions. But I think what we have to do as a voluntary certification is to make certain that we are working with our colleagues in the certification world and also in the association world to make certain that we do have you know, a strong voice 
in terms of helping legislatures understand and really appreciate the role that certification and professional societies play in making certain that there is strong self-regulation and self-policing so that that way government doesn't have to step in. Many fundraisers are really wholly unaware of uh, what happens in legislatures, how they're viewed, you know, on Capitol Hill and state houses, Mm -hmm. uh, even with uh, local governments. What would you say is important for the average fundraiser to understand in terms of how they are viewed and why regulation is growing in some parts of the world and why there is still a desire uh, to see the profession uh, have the opportunity to self-regulate itself. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one thing is that, and, and this will probably not be a surprise to anyone who's worked in fundraising for any length of time, and that is I think the, the public still does not really understand fundraising. Um, you know, the the bit that, that they see either through uh, – you know what they get in the mail or see on the street or what they see on the news you know just as sort of the tip of the iceberg so i think what fundraisers can do though is is be diligent in you know really keeping on top of what's happening in their local areas also to help the educators as well as fundraisers to so to explain what philanthropy is what do fundraisers actually do what is the knowledge base uh, and really act as proactive, strong voices for building a culture of philanthropy, not only within the organizations, but to helping grow that understanding in the wider world. Because philanthropy is a pillar, uh, not only of American culture, but of you know, cultures worldwide. We need to really help educate people about what that means and why it's important, and what philanthropy and fundraising do in order to make a better and stronger civil society. This uh, this latest uh, uh, university scandal of parents, uh, you know, paying and cheating to get their children, uh, you know, into universities, I, I think in, in a lot of ways creates confusion when people then hear that people are making large contributions to universities and having their names put on buildings. Uh, do, do you think scandals of that sort uh, hurts fundraising because of the confusion it creates in terms of money being given to universities? I think it certainly can, uh, because as you said, Ted, it's 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 not easy for I, I think most individuals to sort of separate that sort of scandalous behavior and 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 clearly wrong illegal behavior from you know, the kind of work that goes on in terms of fundraising and naming opportunities. Um, for those of uh, individuals who are just not within the environment, um, I think it's very easy to conflate those things. So, again, what we have to do as fundraisers is, as I mentioned before, continue to be educators. Because I also don't think that people understand that the that a naming opportunity is a thank you for a significant transformational gift. And that's what philanthropy is about. It's about transformation. And fundraising is, is the helper, helper or enabler of philanthropy. That's the way that's the right. money comes in to make missions happen. Okay. Well, when we talk about uh, 
transformational when we, we talk about making a real difference. Uh, one of the people that immediately jumps uh, to my mind uh, is Dr. Lilia Wagner, who is the Director of Philanthropic Services, uh, who is now joining us. And Ava, stay as long as you can uh, here as we uh, the big party here for celebrating the big ninth anniversary show of the Nonprofit Coach uh, continues. And joining us now is Dr. Lilia Wagner, uh, Director of Philanthropic Services. Uh, uh, Lilia, welcome and joining for joining us here on the Nonprofit Coach. Thank you very much, Ted. And first of all, congratulations on your successful program. And of course, it brings to mind all our many years that we've had the privilege of working together, whether it was sharing a platform at a conference or conducting workshops. It's really been a privilege, and I'm so pleased that you're continuing to share information in this format. I remember especially your pioneering efforts on several fronts, such as when social media was in its infancy. You know, so many of us look to you for the right information when such a proliferation of resources occurred. So congratulations and thanks for what you've done for the field. Well, thank you for that, Lilia. Uh, especially- Today we're... I just wanted to ask you, uh, uh, Ava Aldrich, uh, the president and CEO of CFRE International, is with us, and we had uh, started a discussion on um, sort of looking back over the last nine years, maybe even the last decade, in terms of significant touch points that you feel uh, we should recognize today in the philanthropic uh, marketplace, and then your your vision of the next nine years or the next decade of uh, of philanthropy in the United States and around the world. So uh, help us understand uh, from from where you sit where philanthropy has come and where it might go. Well, for one thing, one of my special interests, given my own background as a refugee and immigrant, I've been so pleased to see how much interest has occurred in the last couple of decades, but especially coming to a favorable head in the last few years about diversity in philanthropy and understanding uh, the global aspects. Of course, the Internet, having mentioned social media, the Internet has been extremely important in helping this occur as we have more ready access, more communication across all borders, And I know that your recent book on uh, raising funds across borders is certainly a great addition to the field, and I'm happy to say it very nicely complements my book, my recent book on diversity and philanthropy. The main purpose is... It's a terrific book, Lillian. Thank you. Thank you. The main purpose, of course, of these books that I'm mentioning is to understand the long traditions in so many countries about generosity, but also as it has been brought to North America. I'm calling right now from Alberta where I'm working, and uh, one of the interesting things right here is to look at the roots, the pioneers who established this province, Polish, German, and so forth, and now the newer generations who are coming and really adding to the diversity here, and of course the organizations I work with are dealing with fundraising. 
So this whole aspect of globalization, of understanding, and uh, there are two sides to that coin, of course. One is the donor perspective, uh, representing, recognizing differences in donor preferences on giving and uh, looking at their traditions, their cultural backgrounds, their religious motivations, and then also more inclusivity, which I'm very pleased that AFP, and I know you're involved in this too, the inclusivity of more professionals from all population groups. So I hope that this continues, that we can not only spread out our capability of reaching donors in the right way, but also of truly being a global profession, recognizing these differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ava and I were also talking, and I'm, and I'm keenly interested. Um, you know, first of all, Lilia, for those who may not be familiar with the philanthropic services uh, group, can you just give a little bit of a thumbnail of, of sort of the perspective that you bring to this? Because you have a very uh, wide portfolio of organizations that you interact with. I'd be happy to. I should have added that the topic of diversity and philanthropy is being continued through a website where guest columnists write. It's very simply diversityandphilanthropy.com. And uh, monthly or so, there's a new guest columnist, but maybe more importantly, I collect and list on their resources on this topic that have come out since uh, my book came out. Uh, So this is one way that uh, people can keep up to date on research and population giving or understanding how to approach. Even Harvard Business Review regularly has articles on how to work overseas, what to consider, how to be appropriate. So, of course, nonprofits, I think, are equally, if not more important, because we serve the human needs. Uh, very briefly, Philanthropic Service for Institutions is a unique office. I do continue to be related to the School of Philanthropy at Indiana University, where I've worked for many, many years, and uh, I would like to point out their excellent courses. But the philanthropic service, the office that I had, is uh, operated by and funded by the North America Division of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So we are available to every kind of organization, huge variety, whether it's social service or a church or a university or a medical school or even a zoo. And so the church and the North America Division has made it possible to have this kind of service at no cost or at least low cost. And the world president also appreciates the function of fundraising. And so he funds my working overseas, such as I spent six weeks in nine African countries a few months ago. A couple weeks ago, I did training for a number of countries coming together in Moscow. So I give credit to the vision of these uh, religious leaders who understand uh, the true meaning of fundraising. Of course, uh, for many religious groups, the text that's more blessed to give than to receive is a popular one, and now we have secular research that proves that people who are generous live longer, are healthier, and are happier. 
So it all has come together very nicely and, of course, continuing to work with the School of Philanthropy as they provide training to quite a number of our clients. Well, Lilia, based on that research, I, I, I gather you're going to be living forever. <laughs> Might that be nice? Anyway, yeah, congratulations, so, Pat. I well, really appreciate you. all you've done. And I, really uh, I you wish you another... Us. Thanks, and congratulations, and let's continue to work together. Absolutely. I, I look forward to that. And, and when we talk about success and success in the future, uh, a, a very important author that I want to uh, uh, have join us here for our ninth anniversary uh, party is Alex Brovey, uh, who has been a very successful guest here on uh, The Nonprofit Coach and has brought to us uh, her book, uh, books, Zen and the Art of Fundraising, eight pillars of success, and then uh, eight more pillars of success, and then the pillars in practice. So uh, this three-book trilogy, uh, Alex, um, has really uh, moved a lot of people in our sector uh, in really helping um, those who are uh, practitioners. We're talking about fundraisers. But what I'd like to ask you uh, today is, is, first of all, uh, welcome here to the nonprofit coach, Alex Brovey. Oh, thank you. It's such a pleasure. Congratulations. Happy anniversary to you and to Diane. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Diane is uh, still here in the green room uh, uh, listening, and she wanted to, uh, or she added you to the, the big show today because of the uh, importance of the message that you first brought with Zen and the Art of, of, uh, of Fundraising. But uh, today we wanted to ask you to sort of reflect on the last nine years of philanthropy, and then, you know, through the, uh, you know, looking through those eight pillars, um, what does the future hold uh, for philanthropy? So can you share from, uh, from your uh, important vantage point as an author uh, who has studied and has written and, and is a guide for so many, uh, where did we come from and where might we be going? Sure. So, you know, nine plus nine years, we're talking about almost two decades looking back to looking forward. And my background, as you know, Ted, is I'm a gift planner. So I have a legal background in estate planning and I bring that to the fundraising world. So I started off very focused on technical stuff. And I'm finding that fundraising, as is the title of my trilogy that you mentioned, is very much both an art and a science. And a lot of the things about the science are the best practices and the methods and the metrics that have evolved over time. But there's also a really important aspect of fundraising, which is, as my karate sensei would have told me, the basics. Um, it's things that we learned when we were three and four and five years old that we really should be applying in our fundraising world. You know, nine years ago, we were just starting to talk about this concept of blended gifts for those who work in the major gifts world and who raise money directly with, with donors. E-newsletters were starting to crop up. No one seemed to want to print or receive a printed piece, and now we have a lot of our stuff. People are texting gifts now, and who knows what they'll be doing nine years from now. And nine years ago, I think the, the, the word millennial wasn't even uttered yet, at least in the meaning we all ascribe it to today. And now millennials are going to be a big part of our giving looking forward into the nine years. So there's a lot going on and a lot to be excited about. There is a lot going on. And, and you know, when you, when you talk about 
um, you know, the, the, the fundraiser and the journey uh, that they've been on. I just want to check and see. I think Ava Aldrich is still with us. Ava, are you here? I am. Ava, I wonder um, if, if you might uh, just jump into this conversation that Alex has started in terms of, you know, what it takes to be successful and, and this notion that uh, fundraising in particular is both an art and a science. And from your vantage point as a president and CEO of CFRE International, you know, how, how would you say that that dovetails with this notion that, you know, a, a, an important author like Alex Brovey brings forward in her eight pillars of success. Well, I, I think really, you know, when it comes to the art and science of fundraising, it's important for us as, as a profession to to really appreciate the balance that the art and the science brings. Uh, you know, we do have an established body of, of knowledge, at least in terms of an outline with the CFRE test content outline, and fundraising professionals need to know the science, the mechanics of how fundraising works. But like any highly skilled profession, the science is not complete unto itself. You have to take the scientific principles and then also understand the nuances of working with people and and, how to really not simply craft a structure for a relationship with a donor, but build that professional relationship in a way that that really touches the donor's heart as well as making having it make sense for a good philanthropic investment so i think that's a really key thing and and going to you know zen it's it's that where do we find that middle path because we can't have all science we can't have all art but where do the two come together you know in our work as fundraising professionals so we are fully informed fully knowledgeable professionals but who are still keeping you know, our hearts and the donors' hearts there in mind and engaged in the work. And, and Alex, this is sort of the, the needle that you've been trying to help professionals, you know, thread. Um, and, you know, now we have 16 pillars of success. So, uh, so in other words, we know it takes a lot to be successful. Um, and, I, and I suppose that a big part of why it takes a lot to be successful is, if it were just a science, you could learn that science and, and, and apply that science. But it's the artful side of the human condition that, that makes it far more complicated, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I think Ava, Ava's term balance is spot on. I mean, think about it. When you go to cook something, you can go onto the Internet and get a recipe and you can cook it. But it's the little extra things that you do or the way you present it, what, what dish you present it on, who you're sitting with when you enjoy it. That's the art part. So they do come together in both, in both the science and the art. The art, I use some pillars, things like passion and honesty and courage. But then there are ways to express those. And there are pr- prescriptions about what exactly we can do. And sometimes one of my final pillars that I focused on is, is intuition. And I think, Ted, you had good intuition nine years ago when you decided there was a place for a radio show and you were the right person to do it. And sometimes we just have to go with our gut feeling that no matter what the recipe or prescription, we all get a feeling that we should do something or not do something. And that really defines the art of being a great fundraiser. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think our producer, I, I, I hope I've got this right, but I think our producer, Diane Peach, um, uh, has uh, is, wants to jump in here. Do I have that right, Diane? Sure. Sounds good. 
Yeah, so um, I, I just saw an indication on the, on the green room here. Did, did you want to jump in on this conversation of the art and science? You work with so many different people uh, who you book on this show, and you see so many different aspects. Um, how, how, have you, how have you seen that change over the last nine years? Just um, everyone's, everyone's knowledge seems to grow. I mean, you guys are all professionals but you all bring a different aspect or a different look um, to the table. And it's fascinating to talk to each and every one of you because, you know, you're all, you all are so knowledgeable and so, uh, you know, aware of everything that's going on around you. And it's just, it's, it's really fascinating for me to look at all of these different points of view. And it's, I've learned a lot over the last nine mm-hmm. years. Yeah, thank you, Diane. I, I think Diane's bringing up a very important point here, Ava and, and Alex, in, in just the diversity of experts uh, that, that we have available. I, I'm, I'm thinking back, you know, maybe uh, further back than the, than the nine years that we're focusing on here. But, you know, there was a time a few decades ago that, you know, there were really a couple of handfuls of really true professionals uh, who really understood this concept of art and science of, of fundraising. And it wasn't just asking for money or, as some people might say, sort of begging uh, for money. But, but now Diane has brought up that there are just so many experts and really true professionals. And, and uh, Ava, Alex, both of you jump in here. Uh, that seems to be a very big change over the last nine years. Um, this is Alex. I, I would agree wholeheartedly. And someone like me nine years ago, although I had this wild dream to someday publish a book, I didn't actually know what was going to happen. So we evolve over time. Fundraising as a career has evolved greatly, even in the last nine years, and probably will continue to do so. And we personally, as fundraisers and as consultants and as leaders of these groups, we're going to evolve as well. And as those that were mentored become the mentors, it's our turn to share our knowledge and our wisdom, but as a hallmark of true mentors, always be willing to learn a little bit more. Always be willing to keep the mind open and to be flexible and resilient. And Ava, I guess that jumps right back to you that you have certified and therefore been a party to the training of so many more professionals that in having those professionals, we've now created the, the uh, possibility of so many more mentors and perhaps that uh, spells a very positive picture for the next nine years. I think it really does, Ted. I mean, professionalism needs to be at the heart of any enterprise, and you know, particularly so, I think, in fundraising, where we depend so much on building trust with our donors, with building trust with the public, with making certain that you know, everyone understands the important role that philanthropy and fundraising play in having a strong society that we want. And so, you know, with the growth of the number of CFREs, with the growth of professional associations, with the greater understanding within the fundraising profession that, you know, being a professional requires science and art, the two together, that you can't have one without the other if you really want to be a a full, practicing, successful fundraiser. Um, I I think all that is vital. And the more we can grow that sense of professionalism, of accountability, of a commitment to ethics um, in the profession and express that to those 
who work with fundraisers, uh, who see fundraising but don't necessarily understand how it works. I think the more that we can can really you know, have that sense of ethics be front and center, that sense of accountability, the stronger we will all be and the more pride we will have in the profession um, as time goes along and the momentum will just be astounding, I think will be one of the key pillars for really keeping philanthropy strong and moving forward. Well, one of those uh, people, uh, Ava and Alex, who have been instrumental in helping us understand uh, the art and science of uh, uh, of fundraising and the effect that it has on the donor uh, donor class is uh, Penelope Burke and the Burke Donor Report. Uh, Penelope is the president of Cygnus Applied Research and is here joining us uh, for the big ninth anniversary show. So, Penelope, you are always a show favorite, and it's great to have you back here on the Nonprofit Coach. Uh, thank you for joining Hi, the party. Hi, Ted inviting me back this is great and congratulations like you have made a completely unique contribution to the fundraising world and uh, I look forward to being on your show whenever you invite me to so well done well our producer Diane Peach is here listening and I'm sure she's smiling right yeah right I'm sure she's smiling now right Ted no (laughs) no no well Diane won't let me so uh Um, But but, uh, I'm sure she's smiling because, uh, you know, it's always a great show when you join us. But uh, Penelope, we're today, uh, you know, joining us uh, still here uh, in the party uh, is Ava Aldrich, President and CEO of CFRE International, and uh, the renowned author Alex Brophy, who brought us uh, the three-book trilogy, Zen and the Art of Fundraising. Uh, Penelope, you have been so instrumental in measuring what donors want, what they're thinking, where they're giving. Um, Give us a a look back at the last nine years in terms of the significant things that you have learned and what you brought to the profession. And and to the extent that your crystal ball is nice and shiny today, uh, where do you think the next nine years has in in store for for, uh, donors and the fundraising profession? Oh, wow. Well, first of all, Eva and Alex, hi. It's wonderful to talk to you on the radio today. Um, uh, Nine years ago was a monumental point in uh, my career personally and the evolution of my company, Sickness Applied Research, because um, at the beginning of 2000, uh, well, I guess it was 10 years ago, the beginning of uh, 2009 um, was the first uh, calamitous indication for the fundraising industry that philanthropy and fundraisers had been hit very hard by the recession. You know, there's always this gap uh, for fundraising between when something, you know, seriously bad or something very good happens and its impact on giving. And while the recession started earlier, Um, uh, when everybody came back after the end of 2008 holidays and added up the money they didn't raise um, uh, over that uh, uh, holiday period, uh, the beginning of 2009 was pretty desolate uh, for fundraisers. And at that point, um, I sort of looked around inside my company, which was doing a lot of client services in donor relations, my uh, specialty, and thought, what is going to happen? And I was very curious about how donors were 
um, expecting to manage their philanthropy in the depths of a recession at what was happening to them personally um, as a result. And I put what I expected would be a one-time research study in the market. 25,000 Americans responded and told us what their life situation was like. It was just reading their comments were uh, brought me to tears a number of times. It was it was an unbelievable revelation. And uh, but the sum up of their what they were saying is that we're going to do the best we can possibly manage to maintain our philanthropy um, in this terrible time, even if we have to take the money out of the grocery budget. And so their their commitment to philanthropy was astounding in the face of colossal personal loss. And that survey produced such interesting results that I decided to do a follow-up the next year, which was equally interesting, and then I was hooked. And so the Burke Donor Survey has, you know, became an annual research study with a high volume of active donors. Um, the most recent edition we published in uh, December last year, and over that and, and period of, course, of time, part, yeah, part so, of the part part of the strength of this now, and as you said, it was not you know in the original plan, but but now you have that longitudinal study of yep. being able to track the change of uh, of views of philanthropy and and giving to to charities. So over that period of time, what what do you think are the the most significant messages that we need to must take into the next nine years? There are several, and they are hugely impactful on fundraising design as we know it. So I'd say at the top of the list, um, the changes that came that they didn't come a, uh, about as a result of the recession per se, but they were reinforced and. Um, Uh, accentuated by the recession is that donors today are supporting far fewer causes than they did 10 years ago, far fewer. And as a matter of fact, donors in my middle-aged category who are still employed support half the number of causes of senior donors who are retired. And the way fundraising has been designed is that most organizations run on a high volume basis at the bottom end of the fundraising period. Lots of money spent, lots of staffing, lots of activity in direct marketing and large scale fundraising events uh, to attract the largest possible volume of donors. But what donors are saying today is they've become very selective about who they support, not only who they continue to support over time, but even who they start to support and without um, uh, diversification in fundraising, meaning that you know most organizations may have some uh, degree of a major implant gifts program, but it's out of balance in with respect to the size of their entry level fundraising programs. And until that, it, it needs to come into better balance now, because donors will not be acquired. Uh, at the same rate as before. And, you know, simply a factor of increased competition. You know, while while I've watched donors go through a recession and a partial recovery as far as their philanthropy is concerned, the numbers of 501c3s has grown unabated 
so with this vast increase in competition and a change in donor behavior, it really um, requires some rethinking about what um, a diversified fundraising portfolio should look like. If donors are shrinking the number of charities that uh, they're interested or willing to support, then it, it stands to reason that, that a larger number of charities can't base their success or won't find success in just large pools of donors, that the, the ability correct. to focus on those who can make the biggest difference. But, but so many charities, as you know, you know, still sort of act like, you know, any day now I'm going to start a major gift program or, or any day now I'm going to really, I'm going to go to one more seminar and I'm going to uh, understand estate and plan giving and then I'm going to go get me yeah. some of those. And, and so yeah. why, why is it that when your research so clearly shows and, and points out the voice of donors saying, I want to make more of a difference, I want to be more involved, and I I'm, and I'm want to do that with fewer charities, that charities aren't getting that message? Um, maybe because, um, <laughs> I guess it calls into question my own value, but the number one educator is experience, and the number one kind of experience that causes people to change is uh, being brought to their knees. And, and mm-hmm. looking for a different way to, um, to move forward that is more uh, reliable. So there's no doubt that our research, combined with my own professional experience, which now extends, of course, I sound like I'm still in my 20s, but I've been in business for <laughs> 45 years, <laughs> uh, that uh, uh, there's, there's, some, there's a lot of value to the information we bring to the table but the organizations take advantage of it um, uh, uh, and study it most seriously are those who found themselves, they were in a good position once, and their position has been compromised over years, and they found themselves back into a corner, and they're looking for a different way to do business. You know, uh, you know one simple area in donor communication, when I look at change over the 10 years I've been doing this research, the first year in my first study, most donors were saying they were getting eight-page newsletters and 32-page annual reports from the not-for-profit they support. And in my most recent survey last year, they were saying all we can handle is an email with 15 words and a link. Yeah, to That's make it, it very, very short. Well, it, it, it's completely different now. Completely uh, different. Well, uh, someone so, who is very yeah. knowledgeable of that kind of uh, change, Penelope, and someone uh, who uh, helps guide uh, charities uh, with the uh, Better Business Bureau Wise Giving Alliance is Art Taylor, uh, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Wise Giving Alliance. Art, thank you so much uh, for joining us here on the Nonprofit Coach and the big ninth anniversary show. Well, uh, thanks for having me, Ted. But first, let me congratulate you on a successful nine-year run. Um, that is well, pretty you. remarkable when you think about it, uh, to be able to do something for for such a long time and to build um, uh, so much credibility and respect. So uh, congratulations to you. 
Well, thank you. Well, we have a number of people joining you here for the party today. Ava Aldridge, President and CEO of CFRE International, is here uh, with us. Uh, Alex Brophy, the renowned uh, author of the three-book trilogy, Zen and the Art of Fundraising, uh, is with us. And, of course, uh, as you were joining us, you uh, were just hearing the, the wise words uh, and, uh, and measured research of uh, Penelope Burke, president of Cygnus Applied Research. And, and Art, today uh, everyone is helping us sort of reflect on uh, the last nine years of philanthropy and then uh, through that prism uh, taking a look at how, we, how can we advise what's likely to happen in the next nine years of, of, uh, of philanthropy. So uh, from uh, your very important vantage point of uh, the Wise Giving Alliance, can you give us your perspective on those two topics? Well, sure. I think we've seen uh, a, a great change over the last nine years um, in all aspects of fundraising. Um, uh, we've seen a continuing, um, I think, strength in more traditional means of raising money, like uh, direct mail and so forth. Um, but we've also seen um, many new technologies come in play that have made us rethink how we do fundraising and have created new opportunities, everything from text to give, other forms of mobile giving, the rise in uh, online giving, um, of course, crowdfunding. Um, all of these new opportunities have, uh, have given us hope that uh, there continue to be uh, ways of reaching people and, and having them give to organizations. I think as we look uh, into the future, um, we can, I can envision uh, over the next nine years the creation of communities of givers that may be using technologies like blockchain that make uh, giving more secure and uh, disintermediated, um, where organizations and individuals can be incentivized both for doing good work and for giving to uh, credible organizations. Um, I see these communities being joined by uh, business leaders and business organizations that also want to use their uh, platforms to be supportive and encourage people to give. So I think uh, over the next nine years, um, because of the use of technology and because of how we view the world, um, there will be many new opportunities for people to give to causes and organizations that matter to them. And there may be new incentives uh, also created for people to do that and organizations to do well. Mm -hmm. Art, from your so I, I agree with you that much will change. One of the one of the concerns that I have, and as as you know, and the and the other guests here know, is that you know I've been very much involved with the internet and fundraising, social media, uh, back to the founding of the E Philanthropy Foundation in in uh, in 2000. And and one of my concerns about some of the direction that I see things going in is in a traditional sense. Uh, people were able to understand what a charity was um, and what you could expect from a charity and, and what a charity would accomplish. And there are more and more opportunities for the blurring of what is charitable, what is tax-receipted giving, uh, what is uh, a nonprofit organization, which in a traditional sense is confusing to the average person. 
but you brought up crowdfunding and, and other groups like uh, like that. And one of the concerns, and I'd like to get your perspective on this, are for-profit organizations that very much bend the the notion of giving, pulling at people's heartstrings to really earn a fee, but not terribly concerned about whether or not it's a legitimate charitable cause, uh, what, whether it's actually going to have money uh, flowing for a purpose other than just processing gifts online. And that's a, that's a growing concern of mine in terms of the validation of the cause, the, the actual understanding of the philanthropic in, uh, initiative that's underway. Could, could you share with me sort of where you and the Wise Giving Alliance are tracking yeah. that and as you look into the future, what can be done with that? Yeah, that's a that's a big concern. I think that um, what we have um, as a real challenge, though, is that many people don't do any homework before they make a gift. And and you know, on one hand, we praise the notion that people give with their hearts. You know, they are emotionally drawn to a cause or to an organization that they want to support. And we've even devised appeals so that um, we make it as clear to people how urgent these needs may be. But that also um, hurts us in some ways because it removes from people the impetus to actually do some homework before they give. And that is, in my opinion, what we have to change. We have to create systems whereby people don't have to worry about um, their emotions driving their decisions because we flooded the earth with credible organizations or we have to do more to get people to do homework. And unfortunately, research has shown that the more information we give people, the less likely they're to give. Um, so we have a real dynamic that, that somehow needs to change. And my hope is that we can do more to uh, identify credible and trustworthy organizations promote them so that the ones that aren't doing good work sort of get crowded out by all the good promotion of the ones that are. But, you know, when you see, uh, you know, uh, you know, take a, a, a site like GoFundMe and someone puts up a page, uh, for instance, to, to help a homeless person, which is, you know, just a wonderful cause and a very caring uh, cause for someone. And then, you know, a, a few mm-hmm. months later, uh, people are reading in, in the press that it was all fraud. Um, and then that person mm-hmm. is going off off to jail. But you know, where was the responsibility for that first instance of of a site to say this is actually a legitimate cause? We've done our homework and we're providing a safe space rather than sort of buyer beware. Because my concern is is that oh. if donors again want to give from their heart, want to make a difference, but they have to be, always be cautious that uh, what appears to be a very legitimate site uh, might be fraudulent. Or you hear about uh, people who are buying their way or cheating their way for their children to get into a university, and then, you know, then there are stories about you know, people legitimately making large contributions and having a building named after them. I think these things cause confusion in the marketplace that don't help philanthropy. No, you're absolutely right there, and I, I just think that this is the need I think we have for um, building communities of credible, reputable organizations that are really thriving to do good in the world and um, and identifying them and 
and promoting them so that people can see the ones that have ascribed to the great work. So, you know, what we do at Wise Giving, we don't have millions and millions of organizations, but everyone that you'll find on our website that is accredited by us, we believe reputable. So the yeah. trick is how do we get those charities noticed? And these are organizations that cover all parts of the charitable landscape. But how do we get them more noticed? And um, we have a seal, of course, that helps with that, you know, when you get a, an appeal from them. But we also need to find new ways to make sure that people know uh, which organizations are automatically ones that they should feel trust that they can trust. Well, one of the reasons of we it. love the crowd, the crowdfunding yeah, the, opportunity, though, is a challenge. Yeah. It's a challenge. I'm one of the reasons why we love yeah. having you here on the show, Art, is because uh, your organization does set standards and does, you know, provide some guideposts for donors who want to have at least the, the ability to be protected uh, from the scam artists. And, and to a certain extent, I, I feel that the, the, those who are allowing, and I'm not, and I'm not saying sites like GoFundMe are, are, are completely uh, scams, but you know their own website will say, sort of buyer beware, and you should ask these questions of yourself. But and I think until there are penalties for allowing fraudulent philanthropy to happen on your site, then there, there's no reason for that site uh, to be involved with uh, the verification that that person actually exists or, or you know, help grandma with her cancer, but you don't even know if grandma exists or if grandma had cancer. So I think th these are issues that erode the, the public trust that the entire philanthropic uh, space rests upon. And without public trust, uh, I think it's, a, it's imp important for all of us who are on this show and all of our listeners to do what we can to require higher standards, to call for higher standards, and to call out those, speak out publicly against those who are not upholding very important standards like those set by the Wise Giving Alliance. certainly appreciate that and, and couldn't agree more. Um, and, you know, we also have problems with individuals. We're, we're concerned today, of course, about the uh, cathedral um, and um, knowing already that there are many um, crowdfunding opportunities set up for people to donate. Um, and, you know, you just sort of have this sinking feeling that some of them will not be legitimate. And, unfortunately, it's very difficult to, to find individuals. You know, it's very difficult to vet them, so to speak. And the only right. thing you tell right. people is don't give to anything unless you really know these folks. Now, the crowdfunding uh, platforms will tell you um, that um, average campaign is somewhere around $500, and most people who give are people who are familiar with the person who set up the campaign. So that gives you some hope. Um, but then every so often you hear these ones where, you know, hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars are raised for something that turned out to be, uh, you know, not so legitimate. And so we really right. want people to be mindful here. And, and it, the, the message in this case might be wait to donate, you know, just wait a few days. Let's see, let's let the dust settle so to speak, in terms of what the official um, organizations will be that will be collecting money for the rebuild. Um, and as we already know, there are already um, uh, many uh, billionaires who've stepped up in France and said that they're going to provide a lot of the funding for what needs to happen there. That's so right. Um, right. that doesn't mean that people still won't want to give, and they shouldn't. They right. should if they want to, but 
let's make sure we know where it's going and, and what organizations they can really rely on. Well, and we, and we share your concern, and that's why uh, CAFAmerica.org, the organization that I serve as president and CEO, uh, is an international giving organization that's established uh, a fund for Americans to be able to receive a tax receipt and directly uh, mm-hmm. support uh, the rebuilding of the cathedral. And, and to a certain extent, mm-hmm. you know, I share the same concern that you have is how do you get that message out that, first of all, any contribution made on GoFundMe is not tax receivable. Um, and so right. why, why is it uh, that anyone would give to anything that is a legitimate charity? I'm not talking about giving you know, family members using that as a way to process gifts to help other family members or, or small causes that you're talking about. But sure. you know, what I believe yeah. is that these large scams go to sites like that because they have found it to be profitable. And they wouldn't keep yeah. going there if they weren't pretty sure that if they put up enough of those sites, they're going to pocket enough of that well-meaning money and take it away no. uh, for not charitable purposes. And, that, and that's a concern. No. You know, Art, before, uh, before we uh, – and, and uh, uh, Ava and Alex and Penelope, who are still with us here, uh, we have about four minutes left here in the, ni- the big uh, ninth anniversary show. So I want to thank all of you and to thank our producer, Diane Peach, uh, for bringing the show together here. Uh, in the final moments, if, if uh, folks can just chime in here, you know, looking forward on uh, the next nine years of philanthropy uh, here in the, in the United States and around the world, uh, what do you think will be the largest topics or themes that we'll be talking about in nine years? I'm just going to go down through the list very quickly, just a, a few uh, sentences here. Ava, what do you think the big topics will be over the next nine years? I think one of them will be the impact of the widening wealth gap on philanthropy and what's that's, what that is doing in terms of both contributions from smaller donors and the increased giving power of major donors. Um, and I think so the outcome of that is going to be the, the destruction of, of the small community nonprofit organization that is having its lifeblood um, uh, taken out from underneath it. Alex uh, Brovi, uh, author of Zen and the Art of Fundraising Trilogy of Books. Uh, what do you think the biggest topics will be uh, over the next nine years? I think a lot of us in the field are keeping our eyes on donor advised funds, and I think the reason that they have grown in popularity is that they're meeting donors exactly where donors want to be and where they are. And so I think that if we at charities or we who are consultants or we who head up organizations can figure out what donors want and stay ahead of that curve, but always show them how we're adding value. And I think that will be the number one thing is to continue to add value. And my hearty congratulations. Yeah, well, thank you. And, and Alex, I, I absolutely agree with you. You know, so many, there, there are uh, some people out there that are critical of donor advised funds, but I say the same thing. Why are so many people using donor advised funds? There's no reason for them. There's no special incentive. And I think the difference is, is that the super wealthy have been able to pay for themselves to access professional staff and research and uh, top accounting and validation of charities. And now very, for the first time, all donors uh, can do that, and that's what donor advised funds bring to them. Uh, Very quickly, Penelope Burke, the next nine years. I think, um, and I'm hoping uh, to be part of leading this effort, that uh, the fundraising industry will wake up to the fact that the 
pretty soon the majority of population is not going to be white. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, there is almost no research out there on donors other than, you know, white Anglo-Saxon uh, donors. Mm-hmm. And while I've not said this publicly to anyone before now, so within the next uh, uh, several months, we're going to launch a version of the Burke Donor Survey um, that's looking specifically at giving among black donors in America. So it Wonderful. should be uh, pretty sensational, I think. I think it's going to be very important work. Art, uh, wind us up here. Uh, biggest topics in the next nine years. Um, well, I think there's going to be a lot of conversation around data and who owns it, privacy and security um, of donor information and even of organizational information. And um, because the, the, the stream of information and, and data that will be available to us um, nine years from now will be beyond anything that we can envision today. And I just well, think the um, ethics around the use access and collection of that information will continue to be a huge issue that we need to resolve as a society. I could not agree with you more, and that is why our producer, Diane Peach, brought together the best of the best so we can all learn from each other. You've all done a fantastic job, and thank you for joining us here on the Nonprofit Coach for the big ninth anniversary show. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Coach. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts.